This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative. Find your unique voice, find the right mindset to succeed. Be the first to capitalize on new opportunities to make a living making your art. I am your host, David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, just hit subscribe on your podcast app. And if you want the very best of Love Your Work, all the gems that I've learned producing this show and in my thousands of hours of research into history's greatest creators, all in a short two-minute weekly email, sign up for my Love Mondays newsletter. That is at academy.net slash Mondays. Eric Zimmer was living in a van. He had hepatitis C and weighed 100 pounds. Then he got arrested and lost his job. He was facing up to 40 years in jail time. He had a $300 a day addiction to heroin. Today, Eric is host of the popular podcast, The One You Feed, which was named one of the best podcasts on iTunes back in 2014 and has more than 10 million downloads. The One You Feed is based upon an old parable about a good wolf and a bad wolf at battle inside each of us. The one who wins is the one you feed. Eric straightened out his life and has overcome addiction. He helps others not only through the one you feed, but also through behavioral coaching work. How did Eric go from a $300 a day heroin addiction to 13 years clean and sober? We'll find out today. We're also going to talk about the delicate relationship between creative pursuit and self-image. How can creativity become a scapegoat for self-destruction or a vehicle for self-improvement? And how was Eric able to integrate friendship and his love for music into his podcast. The One You Feed helps him feed his good wolf. And why is Eric grateful that he was drawn to heroin? Counterintuitively, the victory of a bad wolf can spring the good wolf into action. I hope that Love Your Work helps you feed your good wolf. I know it helps me feed mine. This is another ad-free episode. It's brought to you completely by our Patreon supporters. Not only do our Patreon supporters get to know that they helped make this episode possible, they also got to hear the uncut interview weeks in advance. So if you'd like to make this show possible, if you'd like to get goodies in return, support on Patreon. Just a coffee a month would go a really long way. Go to patreon.com slash Again, that is patreon.com slash Here's Eric Zimmer. I'm here with Eric Zimmer from the One You Feed podcast. And Eric, to start off each episode of the One You Feed, uh, you talk about this parable of the good wolf and the bad wolf. So I want to turn the tables on you and ask you, first of all, can you describe the parable and then tell us what does it mean to you in your life and your work? Sure, absolutely. So the, the parable goes like this. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. Mm -hmm. So that's the parable. Um, I mean, what it means to me, I mean, I think that the reason it's a parable is because that you almost immediately get a deep meaning as soon as you hear it. 
Um, and, and so that's what a good parable or story does is it conveys a lot of meaning quickly. But I, you know, for me, it's at its most basic level, it's all about choice, right? We have a choice as to what we get in our life, depending on where we spend our time and our attention, you know, where, what we pay attention to and what we spend our time on really determines the quality of our life. So it, at a basic level, that's, that's what it means to me. You know, a couple of other things about it that, that I like though is I like that it doesn't talk about starving the bad wolf or putting the bad wolf in a cage. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it isn't about repressing these things. It's just about giving a little bit more attention to the good. And then the other thing I really like about it is that, you know, the grandfather says we all have these battles that go on inside of us. And I think that really for me is very helpful in normalizing the human condition that that we're going to have all these things we're going to have good emotions and so-called negative emotions and we're going to have ups and we're going to have downs this is all part of what it is to be human so those are some of the other things i i love about the parable and kind of what it means to me and what do you think it was that attracted you specifically so much to this parable to the point that you created this popular podcast, the one you feed? Well, you know, the time from when I first heard the parable to when I created the podcast was a great number of, you know, a a good number of years, but I know very well explicitly what drew me to it. And I heard the, the parable for the first time relatively soon after I started trying to get sober. I was a heroin addict um, I was homeless and, and things were really bad. And I heard that parable and it, it spoke so much in that moment to really the choices I was facing every day. You know, what was I going to feed? Was I going to feed my recovery and getting better or was I going to feed my addiction? And, you know, in my case, the bad wolf at that point was pretty big bad wolf. Um, you know, he's a little bit more tame these days, but, you know, in those days, the, the bad wolf was, I, I honestly felt like it was eating me. So when I heard it, it just hit me so strongly because it really pointed towards, you know, that that I was making in that in, in those days, really, you know, some life or death decisions for me about what I was going to, what I was going to do and what direction I was going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me because, you know, when I first heard the parable, honestly, it didn't really resonate with me that much. Mm-hmm. I guess I, you know, I think of myself as every, everything is sort of integrated is like, oh, who's to say what's good or bad? Kind of a like a, a Buddhist philosophy mm-hmm. approach to it. But then when I really started to think about it more and, and when I heard about your own experience, then it started to make a lot of sense. And then I started to understand the subtlety of it and gain a sense for how it can be useful to me. And on your show, you ask so many people what this parable means to them. What kind of reactions do you typically get from these people? You know, they're kind of all over, all over the place. Although I would say they fall into one of two sort of categories. Generally, one category is people who say sort of what I did in the beginning. You know, it's about choice and it's about, you know, what we give our attention to, and where we put our our energy is what is what grows. So on one hand, you get that. And then I get a lot of other people who say similar to what you sort of said there for for a minute there, which was, 
you know, I'm not really sure that I agree with things being bad. You know, it's not so much that there's good and there's bad. It's things are more integrated. You don't want to, you know, you, you can't shove all the bad stuff down. There's no dark without light. All those various sort of mm-hmm. permutations of it, right? Yeah, try telling that to a heroin addict, I think. You know, it's like <laughs> not what I would respond to now. Yeah. Although, like I said, in when I was talking about what I like about the parables, I like that it doesn't talk about doing anything to the bad parts of yourself, right? It yeah. doesn't talk about like you can't have negative emotion. Oh, if you have a negative emotion, you better shove it in a cage or starve it. It doesn't say any of that, right? And that's part of what I like is it's not really indicating we have to repress, right? Um, it, it more points towards, you know, what we what we give our attention to. But I do think that it is a it is a parable and, and, and thus, you know, makes a general point, but, but beyond a, a certain level of investigation, you know, it does, it does start to break down a little bit in that, you know, things aren't necessarily good or, or bad in, in quite the ways we think. But yes, for me in the beginning, it was, uh, it was a very obvious choice and, and I still think it holds very true you know, to our day-to-day life. And I think it actually aligns very much with a lot of Buddhist perspective because, uh, you know, a Buddhist perspective, you know, the Buddha himself said something along the lines of, you know, um, you know, what you give your attention to determines the quality of your life, right? Mm -hmm. If you focus on the negative, you're going to get you're going to get negative things. If you focus on the positive, you're going to get more positive. Now, I'm not a big believer in like positive thinking. Um, I would say I'm probably much bigger believer in realistic thinking. Um, But I do think that almost any circumstance we find ourselves in, we can look at from a couple of different angles. And considering a lot of our interpretation of things in life we're making up anyway, we'd probably be well served to to pick a slightly um more optimistic view than a than a negative view if we're just kind of making a lot of it up anyway mhm well when you first heard this as you said it resonated with you so much and you were in this situation where i could see how a little more black and white thinking might be useful did you immediately appreciate the the subtlety of not starving the bad wolf or did that observation come later on? I think the subtlety of it came later on. I mean, you know, I was, you know, when I first heard it, I was, A, I was way younger than I am. I was 24 years old, probably 25 years old. Um, And I was, you know, pretty, you know, very, very recently out of, um, you know, putting a needle in my arm and being homeless. And, and so my level of ability to, to understand nuance and subtlety <laughs> wasn't real great in those days, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say. So no, I think the, the nuance and the subtlety of it uh, came as I spent a lot more time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned being, being homeless in addition to being a heroin addict. So can you give us some background on how you arrived at that point? Yeah, I mean, I... I started like I think a lot of people do. I just, you know, I started with drinking and and maybe, you know, smoking a little bit of pot with with friends and it it started out um fairly normal, although and I I can look back and see even in the very early days like I just 
I had a slightly different um, reaction to those things than what is normal. But it just sort of accelerated um, when I when I turned eighteen. I didn't go to college, but I moved out on my own and I started drinking, and I was just kind of off to the races. And you know, drinking and then you know the the drug escalation just got higher and higher. I was in I was in a series of of rock bands and um, eventually found myself in a band with people who were doing heroin and and started doing that and. Once that started, things got bad really quickly. And in a lot of ways, I, I am kind of grateful that I migrated to, to heroin in those days because I think it brought me to my knees much faster than I might have had I just been drinking or continued to, to do things that are a little bit more mild. I, I think that um, the nature of, of heroin just got me in so much trouble so quickly. It got me in trouble with the law. I was, mm. I was very sick. I had hepatitis from sharing needles. Um, you know, I tried to get sober a few times. That didn't work. My parents kicked me out. I was staying with friends. They eventually got tired. You know, they eventually were like, had enough of me. I just really had nowhere to go. And so it, it happened kind of quickly. I mean, and and again, I'm I'm kind of grateful that it did in the in the way it did because it sort of brought me to um, recovery way earlier for me than it would have if things hadn't been so bad. Mm-hmm. When you say that you had a different reaction to things like alcohol, what do you mean? Well, like I can remember early in high school. Um, you know, going out at, with some friends and drinking and and waking up the next morning at my friend's house and seeing that, you know, we had the bottle of vodka and it was still there. And I remember just thinking, well, you know, why not I just put this in some orange juice the next morning? Like, that's not a normal high school drinking kind of thing to do to wake up and, you know, start drinking again first thing the next morning. Um, so there was just that sort of like, just not... It's not that I was doing it all the time, but when I did it, I did it sort of um, extreme. And then I kind of went to the other extreme where I decided I wasn't going to do any of that stuff in high school. I had founded a nonprofit tutoring program for inner city kids. And I saw what alcohol and drugs were doing to those kids' families. And I just said, I don't want anything to do with any of that. And so I kind of swore it all off for a couple of years. And then after my senior year, I went away for the summer and I came back and my, my girlfriend was dating my best friend and I was in a lot of pain and somebody said, here, do you want a drink? And uh, I just said, why not? And I remember I, I had that drink and I was just, it was like a switch flipped and I was just off to the races. And I don't know that I drew a whole lot of sober breaths from that day until I got sober you know, six, six and a half years later. So mm-hmm. it happened pretty quickly for me. My, you know, when I, when I started back up, it was just, like I said, it was like a switch flipped. And I, I went from, you know, I don't drink to, I drink every single day kind of thing. And when you show up in this band and you realize they're doing heroin, what, what was your reaction to that initially? I think my initial reaction was like, what are these people doing that they're so much more messed up than I am? Because I'm pretty, you know, I'm drinking like crazy and, and smoking pot and doing all this. But then once I realized what it was, my, my reaction was like, let me try this. I mean, I, I, which sounds, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, that doesn't sound very smart, but that was exactly my mentality was like, 
whatever will get me out of myself, I'll do. And, and so I said I would try it and I tried it and, and then it just, you know, that very quickly became the next thing, which then very quickly became a physical addiction. What kind of time frame are we talking about? Oh, I don't know. I would say from the first time I did it until I had sort of a, you know, as they would say, a, you know, a habit, um, maybe a year. Oh, okay. It doesn't sound quick, but... um. So for a while, you were just kind of casually using heroin and thinking you had it under control, is that... <laughs> um, I was, you know, nothing in my life was in control at that point, right? Like, my, I was a, right. you know, I was a pretty full-fledged alcoholic. Um, so, I mean, I think it took me... Um, I think I just sort of mixed it in with everything else. I think it took a year before, like, that was the primary and only thing that I did. And I realized suddenly I was at a point where I was, you know, needing three or $400 a day worth of heroin to not be sick. Hmm. Um, so, and again, it could have been a shorter time frame. The whole period is honestly kind of hazy to me, <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine how, how to uh, arrive at that point, but I can see how uh, one thing after another leads to it seeming somewhat normal. Is that about right? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting because I think I knew really after a couple years, you know, by the time I was about 20, I think, you know, maybe 21, no, probably a little bit, you know, but I remember I moved to California when I was 20 because I was like, you know, things are, I'm just out of control. Like I need to move somewhere new oh, and boy. start over. California is not a good place for that. <laughs> exactly. Moving to San Francisco was not the right thing. But my mindset was, I'll just get out of here and I'll start over. And nothing was, of course, different. So by, but even by 20, I think I knew like, boy, something's not right here. Mm -hmm. Right? Like something about the way I drink and use is not, is not okay. Like, I think what I realized by that point, and it just, it just reiterated itself as time went on, was that I just wasn't in control of it. And so whether, you know, it was alcohol at the age of 20 or heroin at the age of 24, um, I don't know that there was a lot of difference in the underlying mechanism, which was being out of control. And actually, I stayed sober. I got sober at 25 and I stayed sober for about eight years. And then I started drinking again. And I think I drank for about another three years. And then I've been sober, I think, 13 years since then. Mm. But Congratulations. Ah, thank you. The The second time around, I did not go back to hard drugs. I was drinking and, and, and smoking, smoking pot again. And on the outside, everything was okay. I had the best job I'd ever gotten. I mean, I was, I was successful. But inside, I recognized that I was no different than I was homeless and heroin addict, right? The internal mechanism was just the same. It's just that the substance was different and that, and that alcohol doesn't you know, at least in our society, right? The way the laws are structured, alcohol just doesn't cause you to have to do the same things. But I recognized in internal to me that I was completely out of control, that it was the most important thing to me, hmm. you know, that, that drugs and alcohol were the most important thing. So, um, you know, I think I realized early on and, and all through it that I was not in control. Mm -hmm. I heard you mention in an interview, just kind of offhand, um, Something like that you were using your identity as a musician as a way to justify your lifestyle as an addict. Uh, am I remembering that right? And if I am, can you expand on that? 
Yeah, I think I probably said something to that effect. I mean, I think, I think to a certain extent, right? Like, you know, I was, you know, as I was going through a lot of this, I was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, right? Everybody I know is going to college. Everybody I know is getting out of college and getting jobs. And I'm just not doing any of that, right? And so, you know, I was, I was quote unquote a musician but not in what I now would look at. Like if you wanted to really make it as a musician, I was not doing what you would do, right? I was not putting that level of effort and focus and intentionality into it. But it, it enabled me to say, well, you know, no, I'm not a mess. I'm a musician, right? This is what I'm doing. And I think it just was a way for me to, to, to not have to face the fact that I wasn't really doing anything with my life except doing a lot of drugs, um, it, it's just a, it's a comfortable, I mean, you know, the music community, particularly the rock community, right? There's a lot of that embedded right in it. Drugs are kind of embedded in the culture to a certain extent. And so, um, I think it just gave me what felt like a justification mm -hmm. because that's what musicians do. Whereas, you know, accountants don't, you know, <laughs> when you think of an accountant, they behave differently, but musicians, well, they do the sort of thing I was doing. So, and I, I was a musician, but again, I look back on it and not in the way that, um, I didn't put the level of effort into it that somebody who was a musician would really need to do. And actually I remember a, a moment during my, um, during my addiction, this was before I started doing heroin, but I got an opportunity to apprentice with this classical guitar player. It was a really great opportunity to to study with this guy. And, and it was a real chance for me to do something. And I remember I simply could not stop smoking pot long enough to really study and focus. And so I just would know like I need to, all right, this afternoon I need to sit down and play for a few hours and I need to be focused. And, and I wouldn't, and I would just smoke pot. And I really, that was one, another time, like when I talk about realizing I was out of control, that was a time I realized like I was out of control. Cause up till then, everything that I wasn't doing weren't necessarily things that I wanted to do. Like, you know, well, I'm not going to college, but it didn't, college didn't appeal to me, right? It wasn't something I was that interested in. So it wasn't like I was missing something or, but, but that was something I really wanted. I was like, I really want this. I really want, hmm. and I couldn't do it. And the reason I couldn't do it is because I couldn't quit, you know, I couldn't quit using, you know, even long enough to, 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 to put any sort of time together like that. And I think that was another moment for me where I went, oh boy, this is, this is really a problem mm -hmm. because it was something that really mattered to me and I still couldn't make it happen. But at that moment, that realization wasn't a big impetus for you. It wasn't an epiphany that caused no. action that was useful. No, I think if anything, you know, sometimes those sorts of epiphanies can drive you deeper into addiction because you just feel awful about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's the problem with addiction. It's this awful spiral. You don't feel good, so you use to feel better. And then your using causes you to do things in your life that you don't feel good about, so you feel worse. And so you use because you feel worse. And that's the spiral to the bottom. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's relatable without, uh, without drugs. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So as you're thinking of yourself as a musician and, and using, are there certain heroes or, or people that you're looking up to 
that you're you're emulating that you're using to help you justify this self-destructive behavior? Sure. I mean, Keith Richards and Kurt Cobain and pick whatever other rock musician who's really messed up, right? Mm -hmm. Like pick somebody that you you think of for their music, but you also think of for how wild they're acting. And that would be my hero. Mm -hmm. And so that probably didn't help the situation. No. And it's interesting. The first time it, it brings me back to the very first time that I made like a serious decision that I was going to try and do something about my heroin use. Um, I decided I was going to move to Connecticut. This was slightly wiser than moving to San Francisco. Again, another attempt to just move and think things will be different. But I was going to move to Connecticut and I was going to stay with a friend who lived in this really small town on the coast of Connecticut. And I was like, there's nothing there. It's in the middle of nowhere. I, you know, there won't be any drugs you know, and, and I'll go there. And I remember the day I was getting ready to leave was the day that Kurt Cobain committed suicide. Hmm. And I just remember it just really hit me hard. And I just kind of remember those two things sort of being tied together. Now that, that, uh, that move didn't work either. Um, you know, I moved there and sure there were no drugs in that town, but two hours away there were. Um, you know, I think I still in those days, I really thought my problem was just heroin. And if I could just stop doing heroin, everything would be fine, right? But my problems were 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 deeper than that. It was with all substances. Um, but each of those times that I tried to do something and it didn't work was was another step towards really realizing how serious things were and what would work. So I don't look at those things as, as you know, completely wasted attempts, but it certainly, you know, took a lot more before I, I, I was done. And what was the turning point? Was there a turning point mm -hmm. that got you out of heroin? There was. Um the sort of last time I ever did that, I was, um, so I say that I was homeless and that's a, a mostly true statement. The reality was I lived in a van that, um, I worked at a restaurant and they had a van and they let me stay in their van. Now they did not understand that I was living in the van. They thought I was just taking, driving the van, right? But that's where I was living. Hmm. Um, and, um, I got arrested. I got arrested at work. Um, I was arrested for grand theft and, and felony, several charges of each. And they came in and they arrested me at work. And then they, you know, I got out after a couple of days. So you were stealing to buy drugs? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was absolutely stealing to buy drugs. I was stealing. Um, and so when I got arrested um, and I lost that van and I lost that job and I lost everything, and I didn't have very much, right? But so I decided to go to detox. Um, and I had been through detox a few times before. And I don't think I really went with the intention of like, now I'm going to get sober. I went with the, I don't know what else to do. I don't know where to stay. I don't have the job that I had. That's where I was getting a lot of the money to do drugs. I just, I just realized that I was about to be really sick and I had no money and I was just in a, a lot of trouble. And I really went to detox just to sort of have a few days to sort it all out. Um, and while I was there, they said, you know, you really need to go to our 30-day treatment program. And I, I remember I said, no, I don't, you know, I can't really do that right now. It's, it's you know, I, 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 you know, I can't do that. Um, 
God knows what I, <laughs> why I thought I couldn't do it. Like, what was I, you know, what was I needing to get back out for, I guess, to get high. But, um, but I went back to my room in detox and I just had, a, you know, they refer to it in recovery as a moment of clarity. And, and I really saw like, I'm going to die or I'm going to go to jail for a long time if I, if I go back out there. You know, I, was, I weighed 100 pounds. I had hepatitis C. I mean, I was sick. I was really sick. And I had about, you know, 30 to 40 years worth of jail time, you know, pending. And so I just had a moment of clarity. It was like, you better go to the 30-day treatment program. And so that was the beginning for me of getting off heroin. And, and I, um, I stayed sober from kind of that point forward, like I said, for about eight years until I uh, started drinking again. But I never went back to, never went back to the heroin. So yeah, that was kind of the turning point was just a, um, just really a, a combination of not knowing what to do. So getting myself into detox and having enough time there to really realize like, man, I'm in, I'm in deep trouble here. And your contact with the, the parable and, and that parable becoming the subject of your podcast, that I guess was much later or those things are, are far apart. Can you tell us? about how that happened? Yeah, well, I probably heard the parable sometime in the first three, four, five months of, of sober. So hearing the parable is probably pretty close to the time we're describing. The podcast, you know, starts, um, you know, I don't know how many years, 15, 17, 18 years later. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't quite know how the podcast, I just got an idea one day to do a podcast and I thought I could do it with that parable. And it just, it just all sort of landed on me in sort of one fell swoop, like, oh, I could do a podcast. I could use that parable. I could use it to interview people. Now, I know why I was thinking of doing something like that. I had had a solar energy company that I had shut down after about five years and I was doing some consulting work, but I was generally bored and I was not in a great mental place. And so, you know, part of the reason for thinking of doing the podcast was I thought, well, if I interview people, um, about what it means to feed your good wolf, right? Then I'll be talking to people and I'll be reading their books and it'll keep me, it'll help me to feed my own good wolf more. It'll keep mm -hmm. me in a headspace that's better because left to my own devices, I tend to wander mentally into less than optimal neighborhoods. And so some of that was definitely happening. And so, um, you know, that was kind of sort of how that all came about, but it was way later. Yeah, I can definitely relate to this idea, though, of having the podcast being sort of something to promote behavior that you know is going to be good for you, right? Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what was going on? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there was definitely, I had two sort of motivations. One was, yeah, I want, you know, this will be good for me. And then secondly, my best friend, Chris, is an audio engineer. And I thought, oh, if I could get him involved, then we'd spend more time together. And that'd be a good thing because we just start, you know, you get to be an adult and you just don't see as much of your friends as maybe as you would like. And so, you know, I thought it would be an opportunity for us to spend more time together. And so on both those counts, it has uh, certainly succeeded. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to me, and this is something that I've experienced myself, is that, um, creativity or doing creative things such as music or doing your podcast, which I know you do music for your podcast, it can kind of be like a salve for when you're not feeling so good. Was that mm -hmm. the case for you? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it was, you know, yes. I mean, I had, you know, I had started this solar energy company and I had poured my my heart and soul into it and it went well for a while. And then um, the, the, the politicians in Ohio started reversing all the the laws they'd put in place that made me think it was a good idea to start a solar company. And so, you know, I'd had a couple of pretty rough years in, in that regard. And, um, I was in a marriage that wasn't great at the time. Um, so like I said, my, my head just was not in a very good place, you know? And, and so, yeah, I thought for sure that this would be something that would help me to feel better. I needed something to do. I mean, I was doing consulting work, I wasn't doing anything that was mine, really. And so that felt like a, a, a gap in my life. So yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, like I said, a big part of me starting, it was really for my own benefit. And are there any parallels between your relationship between uh, the way you feel and deciding to create something? Are there any parallels to that in starting your podcast with, say, when you were early on into music? Was Was that a salve for not feeling good as well. Yes. Yes, it was. Although, you know, music very quickly became tied up for me in in drugs and alcohol mm -hmm. um, very early on. Um, you know, I started to learn to play music. I didn't start until I was till I was 18. And at that point, I was living with people and we were drinking. And, you know, there was a heavy party element that was really embedded in music. Um, so although yes music is is something that that I do do that does make me feel better and is a way to deal with negative emotions at the time it became very bound up very quickly with very unhealthy behaviors but now music is absolutely something for me that is a um unquestioned good in my life you know as far as creativity is something that I like to do is something that makes me feel better as a way to 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 just touch into myself deeper so now yeah music is very much all those things today without all the negative uh, connotations that it had certainly in the beginning well it, it's funny I I can relate to using uh, creative outlets to help yourself feel better when you're not feeling better but mm -hmm. I guess in my experience I, I've found that if you're not careful with the mindset there, then it can become like this, this sort of spiral where it's supposedly to help you feel better, but then it's almost like you enjoy not feeling that great because then it gives you, um, it makes you better at creating things or something. It's a, yes, it's, I, I do understand. I think, I mean, I think there's two pieces there, you know, two different ways to, to that, that, I could think about that at least in my own life. One is, do I use um, work of any sort, of a creative type or any other sort, as a way to avoid feeling? You know, workaholism, is, as some people might call it, right? So there, you know, there's mm -hmm. some of that, and then also there is this element of does it's I, I would refer to it sort of as the suffering artist. Mm -hmm idea right that that you have to be in pain in order to create any art of a of a certain kind that's any good yeah thinking about you know for you as keith richards mm -hmm. or kurt cobain and i mean i can i can relate to that I, i'm not a, a super involved musician but for me it was like you know vincent van gogh mm -hmm. it's like what a mess or there's plenty of plenty of examples out there 
There are. And, and I think there are lots and lots and lots of examples of the opposite, too, of, of great artists who were not tortured in the same way. I think it's really interesting, though, because, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Leonard Cohen, right? And, and Leonard Cohen mm -hmm. was, you know, I mean, by pretty much anybody who listens to Leonard Cohen is like, my God, that guy's depressing, right? But, <laughs> but you listen to Leonard Cohen talk or you listen to other artists whose music you might think of as being very depressed music. And what they'll say is, yeah, sure, that's a part of me, but that's certainly not all of me. But that's sort of when I'm not feeling good, where I go is to my music. So I think that that lots of people who maybe aren't as depressed as they sound when you listen to their music, that's what gets channeled because it's not feeling good that drives them to the guitar, to the music, right? When they're feeling good, it's like, let's go outside and take a walk and enjoy nature. And when they feel lousy, it's like, let's pick up the guitar. And um, so I think that that element is, is there, but I think you can, um, I also think you can, can you can create out of a place of um, of joy also. And was that something that you had to make a conscious decision to to change this relationship between your feelings and, and creating? Hmm. I think that in the beginning for me, the, the change I needed to make was simply between connecting music to drugs and alcohol. So when I got sober, I was lucky enough to get sober and meet a bunch of people in the sober community who are musicians. So I got to start playing again relatively, you know, really within the first couple years of being sober. And so I was back as a musician. I was playing in clubs. I was playing in bars. And I got a chance to do it all again sober. And so I don't know that I changed my relationship to the emotional aspect of music, but I certainly changed my relationship to the drug and alcohol part of it. Um, you know, I don't know that I give a lot of thought to why I create so much anymore as just do it when it feels like I want to do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that creating things or being a musician, it, it fed your bad wolf for a while and um, sounds like it now feeds your good wolf. Yes, I think, I think that, is, um, that is certainly one way to look at it. And I would say that's probably pretty accurate. Um, although I don't know, you know, again, it's hard for me to know how much of like, what would have happened if I started playing music at 18 years old with people who weren't doing drugs? Maybe music would have never had anything to do with the bad wolf in the same way, right? Okay, so maybe I'm conflating this idea of music with just the people that you were around that happened to be musicians. I certainly think that is definitely, that is definitely part of it. Yes, I was, you know, I, I moved into people and I was part of musicians who were people who partied really hard. You know, I suppose I could have ended up with, you know, people whom we sat around and, and, you know, listened to the sound of music all the time and, and, and drank herbal tea, but that's not really the group I found myself with. Well, did you have to make a conscious decision to be like, uh, you know, you're a great musician, but I can't be around you because it's a bad influence. <laughs> well, you're, you're a bad wolf I, I for was, me. I was, you know? I was never such a great musician that I, I, you know, had to make, had a whole lot of choice um, <laughs> who I was playing with. Um, no, but I mean, I definitely, I mean, like there's a friend in my life. It's really interesting. I have a, a friend in my life who's not that great of a friend these days, right? But 
when I was, you know, all through my early 20s, when we were, um, when I was using, we played music and we were best friends. And then uh, I got sober and not too long after he got sober and we were sober together and played music and were, were together all the time. And then um, when I started drinking again, he happened to be drinking again and suddenly we were back together and playing music again all the time. And now that you know I got sober again 12, 13 years ago, we just haven't had the same sort of friendship at all. Um, because he's still someone who uses and it just seems like that, like in addition to music, that is another part of what makes our friendship sort of hold together. And so, yeah, I've had to make a, a decision in his case that it's just not somebody I can spend a lot of time with, which I, you know, when I think about it makes me a little sad, but it's the decision that I felt like, you know, just kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. I would think there would be a lot of people from your past that are maybe in, in bad influences in that way. But, but just the one? That's the only one who really stuck around. Now, I've got other friends, you know, I, you know, a lot of my adult life, right? I got sober at pretty much very early in being 25, right? And so I stayed sober for eight years and I drank for three years and then I've been sober for 12 or 13. So the vast majority of my, you know, age 24 to, to you know, 48 now, right? Most of that time has been sober. So, um, a lot of people that would have been friends in the very early days. I mean, those, those, you know, those days are long gone. And then there are some people that I would say have sort of moved in and out of recovery with me. And some of them are in more than they're out. And, 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 the, and some of those people I've been able to, to maintain and still have good friendships with because the friendship seems to be a lot deeper than mm -hmm. just using. But then there were people where that was the bulk of what our friendship was based on. And, and those people have naturally sort of faded away. Right. Back to the idea of creativity and well-being. I've thought myself, it's interesting that if you look at, say, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, that uh, I think creative expression is, I think it might be like the top thing, like you get your basic mm -hmm. needs met and then you're able to create. But, you know, myself as a creator, that doesn't seem, I mean, I realize it's just a model, but it's, it doesn't seem particularly accurate because it seems as if, in my experience, being creative can help you skip levels on Maslow's hierarchy. Does that make sense? And if it doesn't, I can expand on that. Well, I think what you're saying is that sometimes you may not have some of the other levels done. And so, but you still engage in creativity and you feel like you're hitting these higher self-actualization points through creativity, even if the rest of your life isn't really well put together. Right, right. That's kind of what I'm thinking. But also, also sometimes that the process of creating can can be so transcendent or it can be so fulfilling that that it can help you fill in some of this some of the lower levels even is that it can provide that extra motivation like I think that might be the case with the uh, with the one you feed is that you're creating something and it's it's helping encourage this behavior that is nourishing for you rather than self-destructive yeah I, I think in the case of what I do yes it absolutely is nourishing uh, rather than self-destructive. And, you know, I, I guess the question is, is that the fact that it's creative or is that the fact of what it's oriented around? And I, I don't know the answer. It's probably some of both. Well, I mean, if it wasn't, I mean, did you think of it as a, as a creative thing? I know I certainly think of my podcast as a, as a creative endeavor, but maybe you don't think of it that way. 
No, I do, but I don't think it, of it in the same way that I think of um, maybe making music as being creative. Um, it's a different kind of creativity. And then I actually think that then a lot of what I'll do with the podcast as far as, um, you know, I often think like I do a bunch of behavior coaching work with people and I create sort of... Um, mini episodes or other teachings and those feel creative more than necessarily just the interviews do although there is an there is an element of creativity to the interview i find for me the creativity seems to more be in how can i take these ideas that i'm getting in the interviews and figure out how to distill them down and and use them whether in my own life or to help other people to use them in their lives but as you mentioned all the music in the podcasts are ours. So the, you know, there's theme music, which we wrote, and then every episode has two music breaks. And those are all written by either Chris or I or both of us. Um, and so I found sort of a way to put that in there. But I don't know that I think that the, I don't think of the reading somebody's book, asking the questions, doing the interview. I wouldn't say it's not creative, but it's not the same sort of creativity maybe as some of the other things that I do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Eric. Thank you so much for being on the show. I I really appreciate you sharing so openly your entire story. I know that I know that it's got to be maybe uncomfortable or maybe you maybe you do that really often, but in any case, do you have a final message for people who want to use creativity to feed their good wolves? What would work for them? I mean, it's a a general thought I have with a lot of things, which is this idea of, you know, I don't know who said it. It's it's often, I think, attributed to Arthur Ashe, but it goes something like, you know, start where you are, use what you can, um, or start where you are, use what you have, do what you can, right? And I think that's great advice for um, really all sorts of things, but creativity in particular, right? Like, just create. We We all, I think, get kind of hung up on is there going to, is this creation going to go somewhere? Is it going to do something? Are people going to like it? Is it grand enough? Am I good enough? All those sort of things. And, and I just find it really helpful to just, whatever the interest is, if creativity is it, to just start and do like something, anything, wherever you are, it, it, there's a lot of power in just doing that mm -hmm. versus thinking you need to, things need to be a certain way. And I just thought of this. I haven't, asked this question before, but you've inspired me with the way that you ask your guests about your theme. Um, when you think about loving your work, what does that mean to you? What kind of trade-offs are involved in that vision? I think that, you know, here, here's a, I'll, I'll answer that by talking about something that's very similar to what you and I've been talking about, which is the podcast and music, right? So one of the things that I realized for me was when I started doing the podcast, I realized like if I was going to do it and I was going to do it well, it was going to take a fair amount of time. And at the time I had teenage kids and I had a full-time job. And so I couldn't do everything I wanted. And so one of the things that I made a decision that was going to go on the shelf was playing in bands because I just couldn't, I didn't, I didn't think I could do the show and commit to being in a band the way it takes to be in a band. So I put that on the shelf as a, as a decision to choose this one thing over the other. 
you know? Mm -hmm. So in order to love what I was doing and to do the podcast and do it in a way that felt like I was really doing a good job, I had to sacrifice something else, something in this case that was music and creativity. Now, I didn't completely sacrifice it because as I said, we, we record two musical breaks to put in the show, but I had to really make a decision to say no to something else. And I think oftentimes to do work that we love, oftentimes there is a sacrifice to do it well. We ha there are things that when we say yes to something, and, and particularly if it's a big yes to a big thing, there's lots of other no's we have to give. And so that was one for me. And, and, and when you said that, it made me think of it because we've been talking about both music and the show. Mm -hmm. I love that answer. I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I asked. Where would you like for people to get more of you? Uh, you can go to oneyoufeed.net and you can get access to the podcast there. You can get links to the behavioral coaching work that I do with people, um, reading lists, all kinds of stuff there. So oneyoufeed.net. All right, Eric. Eric Zimmer from the One You Feed podcast. Go listen to the podcast. Actually, I should be on the podcast soon as well. So indeed, you'll find an interview there with, with me. So yes, thank you again so much. Thanks, David, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Is Love Your Work helping you find your unique creative voice? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to become the creator and human you want to be? If so, please be a part of making this a special and nourishing and thoughtful show. Support the show on Patreon. You'll be an even bigger part of this show than you already are. If you contribute just a coffee a month, you'll be helping support the hosting and production of Love Your Work. Everyone has some unique creative gift to offer the world. Together, we can give people the tools they need to bring that work into the world. The world will be better off for it. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This is a different kind of model for supporting the work that you love. The choice is yours. Vote with your dollars. Put your money where your mind is and keep love your work going. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at patreon.com slash cadavy. That's patreon.com slash K-A, Diaz and David, A, Diaz and Victor, Y. And if you can't support the show financially and you've listened to at least three episodes, can you do me a favor? Write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can consider it your donation to help support the show. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini sponsors Roxana Maynard of Agility Alchemist, at agilityalchemist.com and Paula Spriggs, and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pinkovichis. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs>